It's the 24th of September, 2017, and this is episode 345 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. So guys, we've been hearing a lot in the news about China cracking down on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in all different ways. First, we heard they were trying to ban ICOs, which we talked about on the show. And uh, the conclusion that we came to was that, well, this isn't such a big deal because how are they going to actually enforce this? And the Chinese government is kind of known for making these broad sweeping declarations and then kind of gently backing off a little bit later as they get more information and as they figure things out. But now we've heard that they're kind of cracking down on Bitcoin exchanges as well, which adds up to a more troubling picture. We've seen a lot of uncertainty, I guess, in the Bitcoin space because of this over the last couple of weeks. I think a lot of people want to know, is this a big deal? Does this matter? Are they going to be able to pull it off? How does it affect the cryptocurrencies that we all use and love? What I'm hearing lately, and of course, at this point, it's very difficult to separate fact from rumor, is that this goes much further than shutting down the exchanges. It seems to be a comprehensive ban on the trading of digital currencies itself, including peer-to-peer trading on local bitcoins and other platforms like that. Now, over the last week or so, we've seen a quadrupling of the volume on peer-to-peer trading platforms like local Bitcoins. In China specifically? In in China specifically, yes. Okay, so have you, just to clarify, because I want to first talk about like what actually happened. (laughs) I know it's hard to separate out the fact from fiction, but have you actually heard about any efforts to counter peer-to-peer trading on OTC or Bitcoins in China? Well, th- there, there are rumors that this goes far beyond simply an exchange crackdown. It involves also manipulating protocol traffic within China, Bitcoin peer-to-peer traffic, using the Great Firewall to block access to digital currency trading sites in other countries like the Korean exchanges, the Japanese exchanges, and other exchanges that are nearby. Some people are saying, and I don't know if this is in any way verified, that they're also talking about blocking the peer-to-peer protocol itself, as well as potentially some of the mining pool protocols. This has far-reaching implications, not just for the volume of trading in China, but for many other things. I think it's important to understand the background of why this is happening in China right now. Yeah. So why is it happening? Why now? Well, the most important thing to remember is that this has absolutely nothing to do with the 19th Communist Party Congress that takes place in four weeks in Beijing that sets the five-year plan and is the main platform for Xi Jinping to establish hints over the party while reshuffling the top committee and taking a position in the military affairs in the backdrop of massive currency devaluation a giant $40 trillion asset bubble and uh, serious debt problems throughout China. I I repeat, it has nothing to do with that, (laughs) right? No, this is purely for the protection of the consumer because some ICOs went wild. Okay, so it's political, which it it always is. (laughs) I really do think that for the first time we're seeing the very, very small impact, and it is pretty small, that 
digital currencies are having in terms of capital flight in a country where capital flight has now become a top headline priority for a political party that is facing multi-dimensional problems in the economy and is seeing capital flight escalate dramatically. And so they're cracking down on every form of capital flight. And this is now one of them. I think they're beginning to take it seriously and know that if they don't simultaneously crack down on this and they close all the other doors, all it's going to do is push more people towards these digital currencies. And they're going to try to act now. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of doors to close. Blocking the protocol itself is a pretty bold move. Will they be able to pull it off? I mean, the exchanges have always been choke points, especially when there are exchanges between cryptocurrency and national currencies. But is it really possible? I guess we're finding out how much can a government actually crack down on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies if they are very motivated to do so. Right. And this is really probably the first and most important test of the anti-fragility and resilience of uh, Bitcoin to a direct challenge by a state entity. And I think what's really here, the it's a matter of degrees, right? So... Obviously, when the Chinese government says you cannot trade Bitcoin, that is obviously going to discourage 75% or more of the casual retail traders and casual capital flight investors who had found this as a useful opportunity. They're not going to start breaking the law blatantly or risking their freedom in order to, to trade in this currency. That, you know, that may affect up to 90, 95% of the volume. Can they stop it? I would like to think no. The answer is they can stop it. The Great Firewall of China is not completely impermeable, as we know. There are ways to get around it. VPNs have now been banned, and yet people still use VPNs. There's traffic obfuscation. Tor does operate with difficulty in China, but it does operate. And there's many ways, including the new service uh, that allows you to download blocks and transactions by satellite with a dish that looks uh, remarkably similar to that you would use to get TV and can be hidden in the backyard quite effectively. Can they stop it? Probably not. Not entirely, but can they remove 95% of the volume and demand? Sure. Yeah, the ability of governments to kind of step in and mess things up has kind of always been limited to people who care about being legal. <laughs> so in mature markets, that's a lot. You know, if you are a business and you want to engage with this, well, if suddenly it's illegal to do that, then that's something you definitely don't want to do. But it seems like there will always be that sort of hardcore underground current. It seems like the thing that the blockchain satellite does is it makes it so you don't need to solve that sneaker net problem of trying to actually get around the firewall because you can literally just go right through it. I didn't really understand what the value of it was too much until now, but that makes it pretty abundantly clear. Well, you've got to think of Bitcoin as an asymmetric protocol. You've got gigs and gigs and gigs of data of blocks and transactions that you need to be able to validate in order to maintain an authoritative consensus picture of the blockchain on your node so that you can both accept, uh, validate and construct transactions. But the, if you construct a transaction, you're transmitting 266 bytes. 
266 bytes can be snuck in as emoji on WeChat or Telegram or encoded in a picture or sent by a text message, base64 encoded in 200 characters. There are so many holes in this. The difficult part is getting the blocks in, which is heavy lifting and lots of data. And then you basically squirt out these tiny little transactions. So that's why the satellite thing works. Yeah. So, I mean, there are going to be creative ways to get around this. And of course, there's an incentive to find those ways. When governments crack down, it just makes people more creative, I guess, in some ways. And Adam, I agree with what you said. A lot of the players care about being legal. They don't want to run afoul of, of the government. But at a certain point, when some law come about, everybody's a criminal, right? And then people start to say, well, this was perfectly legal before. And then with the stroke of a pen or whatever, or government decree, it becomes illegal, suddenly turning all these people into criminals overnight. Are they really going to go along with it? Yes, they will, especially in China. They absolutely will go along with it. But you've got to realize that this leaves two broad categories of people outside the purview of this law. So when the lawmakers put down this regulation and issue this regulation and say all trading must cease, there are two categories who will not change their behavior. Those who are criminals. Who were criminals before, anyway. And whose biggest crime is not the capital flight, but the other crime that generated the capital in the first place. That may have to do with corruption, bribes, corruption, municipal corruption, law enforcement corruption and various organized crime activities. They won't stop because for them, they've already done the big crimes. The getting the money out is the little crime. And the second group this doesn't apply to is the politicians who wrote the law themselves, the authorities who enforce the law, the military generals and anybody else who's in this vast sprawling, you know, just as Congress has more than 2,070 members who are the senior members of the communist party. And they're drawn from a multi-million member political party that has authority at regional and state and province level that has enforcement authority and that is absolutely steeped in corruption. A lot of the $40 trillion in debt that have over the last 25 years been generated in, in China and gone into construction projects, and you can imagine how much of that has been siphoned off into fake projects and empty warehouses and bribes and turning a blind eye and all of that. And all of that money needs to get out. And it's held by the same people who are in charge of enforcing these laws. So again, this isn't going to stop. And it's not going to stop because the very people who wrote the law are motivated to break it. And there's plenty of others too. But it is going to remove the vast middle class from participating in this. It's going to allow them to take that nascent middle class hostage on their devaluation trip, um, which they're absolutely determined to do. So uh, that's bad news for the middle class in China. I don't think it's really going to affect Bitcoin as a whole. What about the miners? Though? Yeah, there's a huge amount of Bitcoin mining activity that goes on in China. I mean, you could argue that it's almost like the center of the mining industry in the world. 70% estimates of the mining is happening. It's happening in particularly two regions. One is, I believe it's pronounced Yazing which is where you have a lot of coal-fired plants and you have these rural areas where they are basically selling very, very cheap electricity. Uh, here's where it becomes complicated because when they say, you know, you can't trade, the miners who are paying for electricity need to be able to convert their Bitcoin to yuan so they can pay for electricity. It creates a big problem because in some of these provinces, 
these funds represent a significant part of the cash flow coming into municipal governments and electricity companies. And they've been turning a blind eye. We'll see how much that continues because otherwise it's going to cause some very significant problems. In this case, the central government can put pressure on trading activities across borders, which can then cause the local government to come under financial pressure. The second biggest area of mining is where you have hydroelectric plants. And I believe those are mostly in the Tibet region. All of this information is obviously secondhand. I don't have direct knowledge of this. But again, you've got municipalities that fund their tax base very heavily with Bitcoin mining. What happens to the miners? There are some rumors flying around that mining equipment is now being sold at steep discounts and exported from the country. If you think about it from a miner's perspective, if this is as far as the game goes, the party's over. They've got this massive capital base locked into ant miners that are exportable, that are perfectly legal to export. And in fact, the Chinese government encourages exports of semiconductors and it can be exported and booted up in another country very, very quickly. Um, We may see a massive decentralization of mining as a result of this. Or just see Russia become the next China when it comes to minor centralization. I I know of a number of people who find uh, Russia to have a really good barbs on electricity prices in exactly the same sort of like remote hydro dam characteristics that China elicited and it's they're next to each other <laughs> so wouldn't wouldn't be hard to ship and Russia is taking a strategic perspective where they're trying to encourage mining at the moment for foreign reserve reasons perhaps for capital assets reasons for technology reasons who knows we've seen a lot more friendly attitude this is fantastic this is now strategic competition between superpowers as to who is a friendlier party to mining and who's the least affected or most affected by capital flight and least affected or most affected by the presence of digital currencies. Both China and Russia have to balance all of this against a broader strategic picture, which is they live in a dollar world. They live in a world in which they have to maintain hundreds of billions of dollars in capital reserves in order to buy oil from oil producing countries. And that petrodollar environment is gradually breaking down. Uh, Both Russia and China have started aggressively pursuing trades with oil producing companies in yuan, in rubles, in whatever they can, sometimes in agricultural equipment or military barter for military equipment in order to break the, the dollarization stranglehold that that has on their foreign reserves. Uh, Bitcoin plays a role there. They might decide that this is a way to stick it to the US. So I actually have an alternative hypothesis as to why the Bitcoin ban is coming now and is coming as hard as it is. Um, Yeah, let's hear it. I haven't heard other people talk about it that often, or actually I haven't heard anyone talk about it, which is what are two things that have occurred geopolitically in the past month that no one's really translated to Bitcoin yet. And the first is that America and Russia and China have signed unilaterally signed uh, trade sanctions against North Korea, and that they're doubling down and being intensely pressured globally for China to cease its relationships and activities that it turns a blind eye to with North 
North Korea. And the other thing that became public in the past month is that Recorded Future, which is an InQtel, which is a CIA-backed company, they're given special access to look at the network traffic of North Korea. And they put out a public report last month that says that they found Bitcoin mining traffic coming out of the North Korean internet. Someone in North Korea is mining Bitcoin, just looking at the network. And obviously, North Koreans don't mind Bitcoin to mine them. They mine them to give them to their Chinese counterparts who then sell it for them and convert it back into cash for them. So you can check it out. You can type in Bitcoin mining North Korea. Uh, CNBC did a talk on it and uh, Recorded Future, which is the NQTEL back intelligence firm, is the one who put out the report. It wouldn't surprise me if America said, hey, look, China, you agreed to sanctions. Now stop this whole little game where you turn a blind eye to companies laundering money for the North Koreans. And it just so happened that one of the ways they were doing that was with Bitcoin, which triggered all those red alerts for them to just go, you know, full on. Um, let's actually evaluate this and not turn a blind eye to this and come down hard on it, because it seems as if this is just one avenue that the global political environment could say that China is violating their sanctions agreement. I think it's a convenient scapegoat because, quite honestly, the amount of mining that even in that report InQtel talked about was a tiny, tiny fraction of the global hash rate and wouldn't be generating any significant activity. Let's not forget that North Korea is the world's largest counterfeiter of $20 and $100 US dollar bills. And this is a practice they've been doing for 25 years that, in fact, the vast majority of their foreign transactions are funded with US dollars, as are their arms sales and many other things, because that is the primary currency that they use for the same reason that everybody else uses the US dollar as the primary currency because it's convenient for oil. Oh, I would entirely agree that it would be a political move, but that's sort of the nature of politics. <laughs> Actually, if you look at David True, I believe his name is, one of the former heads of the Treasury for the United States back in 2014 gave a talk about Bitcoin. And he said that the U.S. Treasury's perspective on Bitcoin is that they're not concerned with its narco-terrorist implications or, or capabilities, but that sophisticated actors could use it to ameliorate America's capacity to modify behaviors through sanction, which is a nice way to say that America takes all your money away from you and doesn't let you trade with anyone, but you could use Bitcoin to do that. And I think that this is the first real-world instantiation of the Treasury's fears that's actually been shown. Now, now that China's agreed to these ratcheted sanctions, this might just be the collateral of that. Everyone jokes that Bitcoin's market cap is a feather in the wind, but also forgets that, you know, when it comes to destroying it or, or not destroying it, it's a feather in the wind. One of the other important things with this whole story is exactly that last thing, which is whether it can be, in fact, destroyed, slowed down or disrupted to the extent that they hope to do it. So the political gestures, the grand political gestures of banning have to then reconcile with the actuality of enforcing that ban and what impact that will have on flows. What, what I do think is clear from other bans and restrictions and currency flows we've seen in the past is that it's going to affect the price in the exact opposite direction. It's going to make the price go higher in those jurisdictions. At first, you'll see a small drop because the demand and the volumes go down quite significantly and people try to exit from positions they have. But after that happens, then the price starts displaying the type of 20 to 30% premium we've seen in India, we've seen in Venezuela, we saw in Russia briefly, and other places where you have strict capital controls. 
So Bitcoin will now be trading at a premium, and that premium will go to funding the operations of those willing to do the trading, uh, and they will end up getting enriched by this restriction because they will increase their spread accordingly to account for that risk. Well, I, I remember in I think it was 2015 and 2014, uh, Argentine and Bitcoin were almost double the fair market value of Bitcoin. So any Bitcoiner going to Argentina got a 50% off vacation. And more importantly, any infrastructure company that withstood in Argentina got funded with that premium for the next couple of years. So the other thing that's getting tested here is great. That's a big pronouncement by an all-powerful centralized state that has access to censorship and controls a great firewall, the greatest of firewalls that I'm sure Trump is very jealous of. He wants an even greater firewall. In the end, the question is, how effective will they be? Because if they're not effective, that's a bit of a double-edged sword, because then it provides exactly the kind of credibility to make that an even more enticing mechanism. And you don't get any more censorshipy than, you know, communist China right now. So if they can't do it, then it will be hard-pressed to see it repeated anywhere else. And you don't get more aggressive than the geopolitics of sanctions against the axis of evil. And so now you've got both of those immense pressures being put on the back of Bitcoin. And quite honestly, I think Bitcoin will not only survive, but it will show that it thrives in that kind of environment. And it's proving exactly why it's interesting. It's interesting because... Everybody wants to ban it because the same reasons, censorship resistant, decentralized control, open access, and borderless nature. And we're going to see these principles now play out. Yeah, it's the competition, really, that's kind of always been the interesting part, right? It's that lots of things have tried to compete with money that governments issue, but nothing's really succeeded because they've always had these centralized points of failure. Whereas Bitcoin doesn't really present centralized points of failure. So if they can't stop it in China, then... You can't really stop it for anything anywhere, and that means you can't stop competition. And money is one of those places where competition really has never been allowed. So before we kind of end this topic, I want to pivot it just a little bit. So, so as far as the environment that Bitcoin thrives in versus the environment that we've been in, one of the things that I've been waiting for for a very long time is for a country to say, hey, we should issue a cryptocurrency and actually do it. And we're not quite there yet, but in the last couple of months, we've heard from the Bank of International Settlement, which is like the central bank, central bank, we've heard from India, we've heard from China, we've heard from Russia, that there's interest in kind of starting these, not cryptocurrencies, they're more like cryptographic fiat currencies that still have, that have like the transmission and the technical characteristics of Bitcoin or things like it, but that from a management standpoint, they get rid of the automation, right? And they say, well, we still want our agencies to be able to control this thing because we're looking at it as an optimization. We don't want to fundamentally change the way we do things. We just want it to be a different mechanism. So the question can be a bunch of different ways. How close do you think we are to that? And how does the environment change when we see the first one of those? Well, one thing we do know is that when things like that emerge, they'll be very well funded. Banks can throw a lot of money at stuff like this because that's what they have. They don't have creativity. They don't have innovation. They don't have the edge, but they have a shit ton of money. So they're going to throw a lot of money at this. And that generates a lot of activity, especially in this environment where you have all of these asset bubbles and all of the inflation is going into assets and all of the debt is going into assets. You're going to see if things like this are launched, they're going to get a lot of money poured into them, which is going to make them look very successful from a market capitalization. And, a, and then people are going to write another obituary for Bitcoin and say, see, okay, China coin won because it's bigger. And then we really get into the testing phase because there's a couple of fundamental problems. One is 
that these central bank coins lack the interesting features, in my opinion, of decentralization, censorship, resistance, neutrality, et cetera, et cetera. So they have all of the downside of fiat plus all of the downside of a fully digital, surveilled, controlled currency, which creates a very inflexible system. And that's if nobody hacks them because, you know, I can, to me, the most amusing picture of all is when the central banker of China gets up in the morning and turns on the central control terminal that controls interest rates and finds a little ransomware notice that says, all your yuan are belong to us. Please send Bitcoin to this address because, of course, they'll only take Bitcoin to unlock your, your currency because we took control of the interest rates or we issued a trillion. And if we put it on the market, you're going to have a problem or we've locked the keys that allow you to issue anymore. So now you've lost control of your monetary policy or whatever. But that's the type of thinking they have. The American, I believe, Federal Reserve put out a paper on blockchain and it was a couple of years ago. Maybe their thinking changed. But in the paper, they said that we think that it's natural that if we switch the banking system, some, some sort of blockchain based infrastructure, that it would make sense for the Federal Reserve to maintain the private keys of all of the banks. Yes. And the one lesson we've learned in security over the last 25 years is that no organization, especially not government organizations, especially even the most secure government organizations cannot securely manage information and keys. They get hacked. They get broken into by insiders, by outsiders. They get leaks. All of those things happen to all of the organizations that have tried to keep big secrets. And these secrets are now would be trillion dollar secrets and could be ransomed for billions of dollars. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's the weak point of this. You get all of the centralization of fiat because they want centralization and control. And with that, you get a complete collapse of the security model because the security model of a blockchain does not depend on signatures and does not depend on hashes and does not depend on chains or blocks. It depends on decentralization. Without decentralization, there is no security. And they're going to have to find that out the hard way. Lots of people have said that the deflationary nature of Bitcoin is kind of one of its problems, actually. And this is sort of the libertarian question, right? If you're kind of on the libertarian side, you're like, no, money would be better if it was more deflationary and, you know, had predictable supply and all of those things. And then other people are like, well, the money we have now works great. So what the heck is your problem? So that's that's kind of really what I'm waiting for with whoever decides to go first with this is my assumption is that they will, you know, handle it. Essentially, they'll transition the existing system into the new technology rather than creating a system that, you know, it was more suited for the state of technology. And we will see that kind of comparison. And for the first time ever, we'll actually have two vehicles that are both well supported, right? The decentralized option and then the very well funded, as you said, centralized option. And we'll see kind of how their value changes over time. And I think that really will be one of the great changers of user behavior, just because it seems obvious that we are going to do that experiment. Well, I, hold on a second, Adam. I think it's important to point out that Bitcoin is not actually deflationary. In the code of Bitcoin, it's actually inflationary because there's new Bitcoins created every time a block is mined or new Bitcoins made available to use every time a block is mined. So the money supply is actually increasing. It's just that it's at a predictable, consistent rate that the rate is going down over time and it's capped. Well, this also gets back to if you like your animal spirits or your word, word, uh, road to serfdom, because in the Keynesian model, which is the way that most economists look at it, increasing in supply does not equal 
equal inflation. Inflation is an effect. It's not a cause of increase in the monetary supply. So from the Keynesian perspective, when most people, I believe, colloquially say Bitcoin's not inflationary, what they mean to say is that it increases in value over time, but that I would fully agree that it has a very high debasement of the monetary base per year, which doesn't translate in a net effective decrease in the value because uh, it has a significantly higher increase in demand year over year. It's sort of a theory versus practice thing, right? Because the code says, okay, the money supply increases this much every year. It's all laid out. But in practice, either because people are recognizing the value of Bitcoin, uh, they're willing to pay more for it, or they think it's more valuable. I just think it's, I think it's literally Metcalf's law, which is that Bitcoin distributes money in such a way that the more people who get Bitcoin, the way that it is distributed, the more valuable everyone else's Bitcoin becomes. Here's the, the other interesting question is, Adam, you said something which I think bears a tiny bit more scrutiny, which is the current system of inflationary fiat, centrally banked, centrally controlled, debt-driven, and quantitatively eased, carefully manipulated currency works great. And this is not a debate about whether that works great or Bitcoin works great. The most important question there, in my mind, is works great for whom? Because the person who says it works great has already identified themselves as part of a very, very, very tiny minority. It works great for the investment class. It works great for those who own assets, stocks, bonds. It works great for the CEOs of multinational companies. It works great for industry leaders and multinational corporations. Right. Just just all of the people who get to make the decision for us. <laughs> the 50% of people who don't own stocks have not seen an increase in their wealth since 1974. The middle class earning capacity has declined since 1974. The ability of the middle class to achieve the same basic American ideals has disappeared. And it's getting worse with every year, every generation. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. So works great for whom? not the other six billion. And that is the fundamental question. Well, I think the interesting part then will be to see what system we wind up with when a country comes out with one of these things. Because, Both. I mean, fundamentally, I agree with you. Uh, I, I, you know, agree. All of those things are true. And yet the people who will actually embark in China or in Russia or at the Bank of International Settlement on one of these things probably are going to think that the system works pretty well because they are in that position. So as always, the fact that the leadership is disconnected from the, you know, the people, that's not a new problem. That's the problem. And again, what putting all of this onto a blockchain seems like necessarily it does is it makes it easier to see the problem because right now it's very abstract and it would not be abstract if you were doing all this on a blockchain. In every country, at every time, you have the problem of leaders being disconnected from their people. With cryptocurrencies, for the first time, we have the possibility of the people disconnecting from their leaders. Just after SegWit's activation, one of the things that many of the people following the development uh, path and the various uh, projects the developers are working on have been anticipating 
is the launch of a number of different initiatives that depend on fixing transaction malleability and the script versioning capabilities on SegWit. It's almost as if there's been this pent-up innovation which has been developed in the background quietly or not so quietly over the last two years, and a lot of it was waiting for SegWit in order to move forward. Recently, Johnson Lau dropped five different Bitcoin improvement proposals in a single email on the developer's mailing list. This was followed by a long conversation between a number of the core developers, including Johnson Lau, Peter Todd, Mark Friedenbach, and various others, about a couple of interesting technologies. I want to focus on one of them today, which is called MAST. M-A-S-T. And MAST stands for Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees which I'm hoping is not the go-to market name, uh, but the internal project code name, because it doesn't really explain anything to anyone. I think the better way to explain that is you may have heard of pay-to-script hash. This is a more generalized version of that, which is effectively a pay-to-merkle-tree-root hash. And it opens the door for some very interesting smart contracts and constructs within Bitcoin. What exactly is this and how is it different than what we already have? So with the pay to script hash, for example, you can take a Bitcoin script, a redeem script, which tells you what are the conditions under which the script can be redeemed. And you can encode that, present its hash to the network, and then later when you want to spend, you present the full script. It's validated against its fingerprint. And if you can satisfy the conditions, you can pay it. Let me give you a simple example. We can have a multisig that says, if one of Stephanie and Andreas or one of Adam and Jonathan pay or sign this, you can spend it. So that's not a straightforward M of N multisig. It's a more complex multisig. Maybe it has a time lock, maybe it has a if, then, else, and, or type structure. Is choose your own adventure kind of like a good analogy here? (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. You can think of this as, for example, stepped decreases in security. You have a corporation that has a three of five key among the five executives, except if 30 days elapse without spending, which may indicate that some of the keys have been lost or compromised, at which point you have a two of three between the top three executives, or after 90 days, a special recovery key that's held by an accountant plus any one of the previous five keys can unlock, which means that in the first 30 days, you can override that anytime with the directors. But if something happens, there are keys, you gradually make it more and more easy to recover. That's a structure that I've described in Mastering Bitcoin. It's a kind of complex scripting. All right, so, so far, so good. Everybody with me? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so a script like that could be one or two K and you encode that, you hash it and you can do a paid script hash. That's possible today. One of the problems with this is that when you present this for payment, even if you're only using the simple clause, like the three of five that's at the top, you have to present the entire script. And that causes two problems. One, every time you make a payment, you demonstrate to everyone the entire policy. So everybody knows what other keys exist, who has them, why, or Maybe they see how many keys are needed in each category and what the time frames are, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like this is similar to the smart contract problem where every smart contract on Ethereum is necessarily 100% transparent because they're all stored on the blockchain and executed by every computer that's running the network. So is this the same type of thing? 
In some ways, yes. There's another problem, of course, which is just simply capacity. If in the signature for every input, you have to produce not only the qualifications in order to satisfy the redeem script, but the entire redeem script. If that redeem script is complicated, then that redeem script gets added to any free input that's locked under it. Um, your transactions are going to get very, very large. Now, SegWit partially solves that by all of that is witness data. So it's discounted appropriately, allowing more complex scripts. But still, do you really need this? And it also, there are limits. There are limits to how big a redeem script can be. And there are practical limits to verifying it privacy problems. So let me see if I can simplify this. Basically, the problem is that you have to put the entire redeem script onto the blockchain in order to collect any of it. Yes. And that not only has privacy implications, but it means that even though the part that's the relevant part of the code is small, you, you have to put everything on there. And these, you said that they could be up to 2KB. How large is a normal, uh, like just a standard SegWit transaction in terms of size? How does that compare? Two or 300 bytes. Okay, so we're, this is an order of magnitude. And, and, for, and for every input, you would have to repeat these. I mean, okay, the example I gave is 2KB. It's maybe five or 600 bytes, but for every input, you'd have to do this. Same thing applies to payment channels and Lightning Network. The other thing that we've been hearing about lately, atomic swaps, all of these interesting smart contracts. Okay, but it also means you simply cannot do some things. Let me give you an example. We can't do a one of 10,000 multi-sig, which might be something you might use for a lottery or you might use it for some kind of DAO. You can't do massive multi-sig and you certainly can't do unbounded size multi-sig, but you can't even do more than 15 keys on average before you run into the signature limits. All right, so what does MAST do? MAST says, well, we have this structure called a Merkle tree where what we do is we store the hashes in a tree and then we join and hash together every two elements and go one level up in the tree. And then we hash together pairwise every two elements. We go up and we keep going up until we end up with one hash. And that's the root. That's how transactions are stored in the Bitcoin block. That means that you can put 2000 transactions in a tree that's 11 layers deep, pairwise hashed all the way to the Merkle root. And you can basically prove that a transaction is part of that tree by providing 11 hashes instead of say 2000 transactions. Very efficient structure, log 2n efficiency and storage and retrieval. You can do a proof that's compact. All right, so here what this idea is basically pay to the root of a tree where the leaves at the bottom are scripts that are alternative ways of redeeming. So let's say you do a one of 10,000 signatures. So you have 10,000 items in the tree, each of which is one possible public key, and they're all connected by an or statement. And you can modify that, but let's take the simple example. So it's key A or key B or key C or key D all the way to 10,000 keys. You put those in the bottom of the tree, there's 10,000 items in the bottom, then the next layer has 5,000, 2,500, 1,250 keys, you keep going up until you get to the root some 14 layers later. Yes? I don't do math. I certainly don't do math live. I always get it wrong. <laughs> Massive efficiency, right? So effectively with a tree that, that, that involves 14 layers, you've now expressed 10,000 conditions by which a script can be redeemed. Here's the best part. If you want to redeem by the 12th key out of 10,000, you present that script only not the other 9,999 scripts that could possibly be redeemed, but are not. You present only that one, its hash, and the 
13 other hashes that prove that it's part of the tree, and you can redeem it. So you've obscured the vast majority hasn't even been presented. Nobody knows what the other conditions are, and you selectively revealed only the one condition, and then a proof that it's part of the tree of conditions that you all originally agreed on. You can do very, very generalized multisig that combine any kind of Boolean combination and or of thousands and thousands of keys. You can use aggregated signatures on this signature aggregation. You can make very complex scripts, and you can also take relatively simple scripts like multisig that has 15 different conditions and various time locks. Only present the ones you're actually using so that nobody knows your backup strategy and your and the alternatives that exist, and save a lot of space on the blockchain by only presenting one of the, say, 20 clauses that might exist. How many transactions does it take to get something like this into the blockchain? If you're talking about something that's 14 layers deep, is it still just one? The way this works is you write the smart contract or your wallet writes the smart contract that says, you know, three out of five of the directors or the two accountants and the backup key plus one of the directors, you know, whatever the complexity of the script is, you write it out. You then split it into sections that are the different ways of redeeming. Then you calculate those hashes, then you calculate the next hashes and the next hash and the next hashes, and then you produce the root. All of this you do offline on your own machine, don't need to tell the blockchain at all. All you tell the blockchain is, I'm going to create an address and this address is going to be kind of like a P2SH address, starts with a three. This is going to be a different format. It's a pay to tree root address. And it says, this is the root of the tree. The blockchain doesn't know anything at that point. It just knows, hey, there is a tree. This is its root. We don't know what's in it. We don't know how deep it is, but this is an address. Now I'm going to send a Bitcoin to that. Okay, so now this Bitcoin is tied up to this one root hash. Uh, it's a very small script at this point. It's basically three opcodes and a root hash. And then how do you redeem that? Well, if you redeem it, you have to know the tree. You pick the clause you want to execute. You reconstruct the hash proof up to the root, and you present a signature that says, here's my signature. Here's the hash of the script. Here's the script that I'm executing. Here are 13 hashes that connected to the root of this UTXO. And that goes in the signature and the network evaluates that. So you're putting the question into the blockchain with the first one. And then all of these different scenarios that could potentially work construct an answer that would be accepted by that question. So essentially where right now there's, you know, one answer, one question, this is, changes it to there's one question, potentially many answers. 10,000. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can also have complex logic in there. So it's not just, it could be any one of these 10,000. It could be, it's this one over here, or it's those three guys over them. there, or yeah, combinations mm -hmm. and different timing and stuff like that. So that actually sounds like a really massive improvement in terms of efficiency relative to smart contracting possibilities on the Bitcoin blockchain, really. Yes. Also in terms of saving capacity on the blockchain, because as you can imagine, because this is a log to end structure, provide the satisfying signature and its path to the root to address a thousand elements. You have, you know, 13 hashes to address twice that many elements. You need one more hash twice that many elements, one more hash. And you know, that's an exponential, which means that with a tree that's 30 layers deep, you can address 4 billion conditions. But one of the things that this strikes me as being very useful for in the immediate term is a more efficient way to do on-chain escrows. 
Because right now, that's a function that has lots of like, I mean, we built a system that uses multi-sig and lots of different abstraction layers and stuff like that. And other, other people have done kind of similar things. But most of the automation there really winds up being on the application side. And you just use kind of Bitcoin addresses in their normal format in uh, uh, multi-sig. Whereas this is like, you could set up the entire system to entirely run on that with all of the fallbacks and strategies built into it. Yes, exactly. What's really interesting now, and if you want to pay more attention to this, follow the conversation that's happening on the Bitcoin dev mailing list is currently a conversation about the best way to implement this feature. There are three or four different alternatives. And the one that is gaining traction right now is a generalized template for tail call execution semantics to be added to the stack interpretation of the Bitcoin engine. That means that taking the P2SH model that was a fairly limited and static kludge uh, and replacing it with a generalized template that allows you to embed scripts within signatures in a very generalized way that is very flexible, but remains Turing incomplete and doesn't have infinite recursion. And also very, very upgradable in the future without deciding in advance what people might decide to do with this. So that discussion, those design trade-offs and compromises that give you the best compromise between security, usability, minimization and simplicity of the feature, the broadest set of possible futures. That's the conversation that's happening now on the dev list. It's fascinating and it's a feature we're going to see, I think, relatively soon within the next six months to a year implemented as a soft fork. But if you want to tune into that conversation, we'll have a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens, and this episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. If you have any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.